Freethinkers, and welcome back to another episode of the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me today is the Free Thought Project editor-in-chief, Matt Agarist. Our guest this week is Johnny Vedmore. Johnny is an independent journalist from Cardiff, Wales, who has spent a great deal of time and energy researching the history and intricate details of the World Economic Forum. Johnny was suggested to us as a podcast guest by the great Whitney Webb because Johnny's level of knowledge about the WEF and the CFR is vast and well-researched. The World Economic Forum has been in the news a lot lately, and it seems as if most of social media is abuzz with rumors, conversations, and accusations about Klaus Schwab and his ominous organization. So we wanted to ask some relevant and timely questions to better understand their history, focus, and agenda. Johnny is the perfect person to answer those questions, so if nerding out on a secret global organization is your cup of tea, you're going to enjoy this episode. Hey, Johnny, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to the Free Thought Project podcast. Oh, brilliant. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and speaking to you. Absolutely. Well, speaking of which, you were referred to us by the great Whitney Webb, which we had on our podcast geez, about a month and a half ago now, maybe a little bit longer. And it was actually the most successful podcast we've ever had. We've had the most downloads, the most listens. Wow. So the fact that you're you're teamed up with her, that you're working with her must mean that you're doing something right. But in, in all seriousness, I'm happy to have been turned on to your work, which is quite extensive when it comes to investigating and documenting the World Economic Forum. And of course, Dr. Evil himself, Klaus Schwab. And mm-hmm. um, you've, you've wrote a few masterful articles for the unlimitedhangout.com, which were definitely in-depth and well-researched. And I also listened to a very powerful interview you did with the Bob Murphy Show. So you know, for our, our audience listening, we're pretty much going to be nerding out on all the intricate details about these organizations, the WEF, the CFR, um, hopefully both past and present information. And I don't necessarily want to speak for Matt, but you're definitely much more educated on these topics than us. So I have a feeling we'll be doing mostly the listening just to learn as much as we can. But before we jump into all that, I think it would be good for our audience to kind of get to know you perhaps a bit and, and learn about you, your background. Uh, what got you laser focused on the World Economic Forum, and also how you linked up with Whitney Webb to write for her website? Uh, well, I, I've been interested in uh, lots of things that weren't writing for a long time. I was interested in music. I was working in hotels for years. Um, I, I worked in some swanky hotels, five-star hotels, got to see a little bit of the other side of life. Um, as slowly as I worked in hotels, I, got, I, I, I went downhill in hotel quality as I went until I was basically working in a two-star hotel and I was much around, more like I was around my type of 
for people. Um, but I was a musician uh, for a lot of it, and a lot of the uh, Cardiff uh, club scene, um, nightclubs where you could actually go and play, the music clubs, they were all closing down one by one. It used to be uh, known as, you know, capital of culture uh, for, for Wales. It was a place where you didn't have to have a busking license in the, the whole of the UK. You had to have a license, except in Cardiff. It was music capital. It was this place where Shirley Bassey had come from. You know, Tom Jones had cut his teeth in. Uh, he was from South Wales. Uh, we got a long history of famous musicians from South Wales, like Stereophonics and Manic Street Preachers back in the day. Um, and, and we, you know, it was an exciting, vibrant place. And I was a musician. I was desperate to make it out there. And everything was changing. The whole scene was changing because nightclubs and music clubs were closing down one by one. Uh, they were being um, uh, made uh, into corporate entities. There were You couldn't get your music played on radio stations. The only real route in to the um, being played on the radio stations in Britain at that time was like BBC introducing, and they only introduced who BBC allowed them to introduce. You know, it was a very select few. And they were the people who you saw playing all of the time who already had a record contract, who were already, you know, signed, sealed, and delivered, going to be one of the guys, bands played over and over again on the radio, whether people liked them or not. Um, and there was lots of, I had lots of like experience in the music scene that made me realize that it was all changing. It was all going digital. It was all going online. And lots of musicians were just sitting around making their MySpace pages back in the day and be like, I'm going to make, I'm going to become famous on MySpace. This is it. I'm going to have like five songs and they're going to be the best songs ever. And everybody's, oh, and I can, I can keep pressing, click forward and get my plays up like, you know, and, and get other people on my fans go around and press play over and over again. And um, it's just, it, it was the fabric of reality in the music industry was already tenuous at best and was breaking down really quickly. Um, there was no places to play. Um, of course, like flats and apartments spring up in the city centre. They used laws to shut down uh, the last of the, the raucous music venues. And what we were left with was the establishment music venues where the big bands play and no one gets a chance. And so um, after that, I was really depressed. I kind of went on a psychedelic journey um, uh, just went up to the mountains in, uh, in Garth near Cardiff and picked a load of mushrooms uh, and spent three months finding myself. It was either death or glory in that sense. It was like I was really at the lowest point. Um, and what it, it made me do is question loads of things. I already was like looking into different parts of how systems work, but I just wanted to know more. So I went into the world um, of investigating and thought I'll write things down and I will I will do good karmatic uh, karmic uh, things and good karma will come back to me and it will all be good and I've been kind of surfing that karmic wave for quite a while and eventually I was researching a lady who was wrapped up in the Epstein affair who had been on the Lolita Express back in 2002 and then in about 2017 got involved in Carbine 9-11 which was Ekud Barak's uh, Mossad connected um, uh, company which was wanted to take over all of the 9-11 uh, telephone services in the US. So you wouldn't be phoning the police anymore. You'd be phoning Mossad and Ekou Barak's boys, and then they would decide whether 
whenever the police go out and you know they it's all about put installing future tech into the uh police uh of america and around the world um and she had been involved in that project alongside jeffrey epstein peter Thiel, um and it was really interesting but the story the first story article was being censored um uh, on a platform called vocal.media it just floated on the stock exchange or some stuff like that you know it started selling shares to people and then it started censoring um and it, it they'd been she had been uh using all methods nicole youngcom and this lady i've been investigating have been using all methods to try and hide my work for ages and ages so it's really hard to get my head above water and then uh whitney webb came along and said we had a conversation about something epstein related i i asked her a question about something i was researching uh to do with those cases and um and we started talking and then eventually we had a we have a baby together and we're very similar people so we're investigating the same things we're in the same things and we hit it off uh really uh, decided let's look at all of the the bad folk in the world and we did have a plan at the beginning of 2020 that wasn't focused on where we expected to go but by the end of 2020 uh, we were sitting in the house in Chile and uh, Whitney said to me listen um, no one knows about Klaus Schwab's history you uh, research the family histories of the rich and famous. I had looked at people like Bill Gates and gone back 700 years in his family history to find out the truth of what was really going on. Um, so go, go and find out. I'll give you six weeks <laughs> to find out who Schwab's father was. And that led me on a journey uh, where I discovered that he had been wiped off, all that information had been wiped off uh, the map. And it, it turned out his father was a man called Eugen Schwab. You know, lots of people want him to be uh, someone who was married into the Rothschild family and stuff and that's allowed the uh, mainstream media to use that narrative to say Schwab's father wasn't a Rothschild and things like that um, but uh, Schwab's father was something he wasn't uh, this Nazi over here he was that Nazi over there he was working for um, a managing a Nazi model company called Escher Weiss uh, during the war and it's an extremely interesting story because Escher Weiss were creating um, large turbines for the heavy water projects uh, in uh, the Nazi atomic bomb program, um, which of course was is right on the forefront of whether you win or lose the war and would eventually uh, lead Schwab's father, Eugen Schwab, to tell his young son in 1964 that if he wanted to make something out of his life, if he wanted to move forward, he should go to Harvard uh, where Henry Kissinger was running the international seminar. But Kissinger made uh, made it also the center of nuclear debate, nuclear theory, uh, the theory of nuclear wars, uh, mutually assured destruction. The ideas were, were racing around Harvard and Eugen Schwab saw an opportunity for his son to walk in his own footsteps if he had uh, got a good master. And well, his idea of a good master, our idea of evil master is exactly what he got. So, yeah, we're going to hopefully get into some Henry Kissinger questions. I would, I'd love to hear about some of his history as well. Uh, but first, I just wanted to say congrats. I didn't realize that you and Whitney were a, a couple, an item, a thing. I didn't realize you had a, a baby together. So congrats on that. It's going to be a brilliant baby. I could already foresee that. He's um, a good boy. He smiles a lot. It's a good start. 
<laughs> Definitely a good start. And uh, yeah, she's she's great. I've every time I've ever messaged Whitney, she's always responded, and she doesn't have to. You know, I could only imagine, especially when she was writing the books, like how busy she was. But she's always there with an answer or a resource to a link or a certain article or something. So she's great and uh, well done there, my friend. <laughs> She is a good girl. She's a very, she's a very lovely, and she's a loving mother. Uh, she's a great human. Uh, we got a lot together that that sort of like we're both interested in, and she wants the same thing as I do—a peaceful life. But we've got to work out all of this nonsense if we want to get to that point. Oh. I think. Yeah. That, yeah. Exactly. I think that's uh, what we're all trying to do. But um, you had mentioned investigating the World Economic Forum, and I'm, I'm glad that you have, Johnny. I'm glad that somebody really has taken the time to delve deep into the history and really try to understand like where it stemmed from, how it manifested into existence. All these things are extremely important. And it's kind of interesting because one of our previous guests, the great Gavin Nasciamento, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with him or not, he's, he's a great researcher in his own right. But he had mentioned this theory, which I kind of want to run by you just to get your take on it. And yep. he, he said, you know, we're constantly seeing news about the World Economic Forum. They're constantly uh, trending on Twitter. In fact, even today, Klaus Schwab was trending on Twitter. And these kind of clandestine organizations rarely want attention and light shined on them. So, I mean, seeing that they're, they're trending so much, they're always kind of in our face. According to Gavin, this is all way too loud. This draws too much attention. And it leads Gavin to at least believe that the, these guys are more of a front organization to draw attention away from the real actors, maybe like the people within the CFR. So I know that the World Economic Forum is your main focus. And perhaps sometimes that focus may not allow us to see it from different perspectives. But in your opinion, like, is there any grounds for speculation on that theory? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that um, uh, all of these organizations are just shells run by men um, who will let them go if the, 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 it doesn't work as a vehicle anymore. Um, but this is a very special one. This is, uh, I think, one of a few globalist entities that was set up during the same time, but this one got more successful than anybody else. And it's right. There's a lot of noise coming from there, but that's uh, there's a reason behind that. They, they, they're, they're pushing some massive boundaries. They're doing some big works. They're making big steps, and people have started to take notice of them. This started at the beginning of the, the about the late 90s, uh, the beginning of the millennium. It's really interesting when you research some of the most interesting uh, periods in history what people were up to, like people like Epstein and stuff. It's all happening all around the late 90s and early noughties. It's all in this time where there seems to be this freedom. It's like free love for intelligence agencies and stuff. They're getting away with everything they, they want to do. But people were starting to, to write stories about them. The reason why we're able to look back on those is because they weren't present in the media before. You looked at uh, stories about Epstein. They were like once or twice it was a puff piece, but nothing that, 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 that exclaimed, that, oh, we don't know if he's Mossad or this or that or the other and started like exclaiming these grand like questions about who these people were suddenly like even the mainstream media was starting to question the balls out intelligence agency uh, nonsense that was happening all around the place and how it was connected with the same old characters in Britain the royals and things and all of those things that, that make for good press anyway and around that time they realised we've really got to sort this out and this is why they employed uh, a firm uh, became really aligned, not employed, uh, uh, but, but Edelman PR. 
it was set up by Daniel J. Edelman. Um, he was another guy who worked, ran psyops in Germany during the war, um, and he, he's extremely they're an extremely powerful PR company, and they started um Edelman PR Trust Barometer around 2000 to publicly kind of like control the image of the World Economic Forum and push out this sort of like uh, other other look to the organization or more polished look and what i think they discovered over the years as you watch how that uh their pr approach uh progressed is that this this pr firm became is now like representing 70 percent of the biggest entities in the world and is basically sets the narrative and the lines for politicians young global leaders all different types of uh, of people all around but they do put out loads of stories, loads of articles, all about the World Economic Forum. That means you'll be drowning in information and most of it will be puff pieces or will treat big uh, moves as matter of fact, like you'll own nothing and be happy, you know. A lot of these pieces like that is a bit of a vacuous piece created by someone, you know, but they, while we're looking up there on the, the um, mountainside, be sure, be sure these guys are the guys they want us looking at. They they want us staring up at this uh, ivory tower and going, look at these nasty folk who are disconnected from reality. And Schwab plays that role. So I think, yeah, Schwab is a front for the globalist government that we don't know completely their names. We're not, we're not used to hearing their names around the place. And a lot of people like to throw out the old names, but there's a lot of new names in there now. Um, a lot of very rich people. So I, I can, I can accept that there's, people can have theory other theories and they will uh potentially turn out to be true he even wears the costume to play that role right That's yeah 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 and it's <clears throat> he wants he wants you feeling like you know they, they want to be looked up to by us they don't want they don't give a damn about our opinion they don't really care what we think of them they want us to look up to them and see them as this powerful entity and for that you have to be in a sense the only thing that 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 power leads to is some sort of like evil malevolence and that's what they want there they want that evil malevolent look so that we're all fearing them because that's the type of people they are that's how capitalism works and the weird thing about the World Economic Forum is it's, it's, it's not really fully capitalist. It's kind of like an amalgamation of loads of different type of, uh, of philosophies, social philosophies, or, or uh, um, it's bits of communism, bits of fascism, bits of uh, capitalism all mushed together to be appropriate to whoever's buying and selling whatever at any one time. Yes. Mm -hmm. And re now, like recently, they've even come out against people who try to point any of this stuff out, right? The uh, One of the top uh, officials within World Economic Forum, his name is Adrian Monk. He recently said that uh, if you talk about uh, if you talk about the WEF, then you're a conspiracy theorist and and we should we need to stop talking about it because there's uh, there's bigger issues for for people to be thinking about other than other than what the World Economic Forum is planning for us. So uh, what those bigger issues are. Uh, we don't know, but they specifically point or he specifically pointed out the the part that you just said, uh, the welcome to 2030, where I own nothing and have no privacy. You know, when people mm. say stuff like that, they totally deserve our scrutiny, man. And if. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. You know, if we don't if we don't give it to them and we don't we don't scrutinize them, then who will? <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I think that the World Economic Forum are, are really um, a lot of what they project out is uh, literally that projection. They, they also want us to be riled up. They want to cause a bit of trouble here and there. They, they're in a safe zone. They're in Switzerland. They're all right. Um, they, they won't be attacked. Or so they think. Uh, let's see what happens eventually in Switzerland. I, you know, th these guys—they play a game. They play a game. It's a game that's been played for years, and the real people who are moving the pieces are behind the scenes. They are in places like the CFR. Um, whenever I do investigations, when I get right down to the nub of things, it's always the CFR man standing at the end of the gun. Like you know, it's always every single time. And there's been some really interesting people in history, and uh, three of them were Schwab's mentors. That's one of the. That's like the part of the second article that I wrote was about the the where Schwab was told by his father in 1964, if you want to make it with something in something, you've got to go to Harvard. It was the center of this uh, debate about nuclear war, about communism, about the Cold War. And he went there and he attended Kissinger's International Seminar, which he says, you know, Henry uh, uh, kindly allowed me to sit in and all of this. But it's not true. It was actually uh, anybody went attended Kissinger's International Seminar. It was paid for them to go over there. Their board was all paid. All of their food and expenses were completely covered because these were the best and the best in the world who could be trained up with American-leaning uh, ideology and sent back to their own countries to be installed into positions of power in politics or in business um, and rise to the top. And eventually, that would mean uh, they would be able to control the uh, communist threat that was coming from the Soviet menace that had been practicing good propaganda, you know, really fine Lenin uh, rich propaganda, uh, especially on um, youth organizations uh, and and larger organizations since about 1990 with Willy Munzenberg, uh, the famous uh, German uh, communist who uh, would fight the black shirts on the street or whatever, you know, in, in Germany, um, invented Comintern and, uh, or Comptern, uh, which was a communist sort of youth group. Um, and th this was only countered by the West in around 1945. Suddenly all these uh, organizations like Way and other youth organizations started popping up and they, they were basically to counteract the communist threat. Once um, the war had finished in um, uh, Germany, uh, Peace was apparently uh, all over Europe, except Germany was divided up into different parts, different people controlling. The Cold War was reaching its peak. And it was the people uh, like Kissinger in the hallways of CFR buildings who were gaming out the nuclear threat from this dynamic, this West versus East um, dynamic that was uh, building up. And 1950, Kissinger would leave Harvard, write the biggest dissertation in Harvard's history. Everybody loved him, uh, and he would be uh, suggested, recommended um, by George McBundy, I believe his name is, uh, one of the professors of, uh, at the School of Government at Harvard, um, to uh, uh, be a member of the CFR, where he would game out these things. But he would also set up Kissinger's international seminar, and eventually Schwab himself would be recruited as one of of these 
young global leaders of Kissinger's international seminar. He would attend from 1965 to 1967. He would leave in 1967 and he would leave with mentors. He would be, have been trained by Kissinger and Kissinger sent him uh, a, a back with John Kenneth Galbraith, the famed econ economist, um, uh, teacher of JFK, one of the most interesting people in, in uh, history. I think he's a super spy myself. Myself, but uh, I, I mean, one day I'll write that story. Um, and and Herman Kahn, who's known as the real Doctor Strangelove, and that's that that's like you know he he was the guy who was the king of nuclear theory. They used game theory to uh, to to understand uh, the dynamics of nuclear war. And once in about 1961, he um, he would uh, publish his work on thermonuclear war. I think that was called and uh it, it basically it, it blew people's minds but it also made it clear that no one was going to actually start a nuclear war because for every like finger pushing down on the button there was 14 hands lifting up that finger you know there was uh, no one wanted and the more that nuclear arms proliferated they discovered that the safer everybody actually was because everybody would feel safe but would 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 be willing to press that button that keeps everybody else in line and it has this kind of effect that, that everybody knows if one person does it everybody's dead so well we may as well not do it then that seems to be the psychology i mean that only works as far as someone doesn't actually fire a nuke or you don't have a madman uh, doing something like that man you mentioned you, you said something pretty powerful there a little while ago about every road that you look down there's a there's a member of the cfr at the uh, at the end of it you know and that's a that's a very powerful point and that's one group that no one actually talks about but has been around for for almost a century i guess or even maybe longer uh if we look at like some of the founding members uh why do you think that that is why do you, why don't we why don't people more people talk about the council on foreign relations you know even like it's a it's now a new talking point on the right that they always yeah. point out Klaus Schwab and WEF, but you never hear anybody on the right talk about the Council on Foreign Relations or the the Trilateral Commission, which you know has ties back to major media organizations that control most of the information that the general public sees and can manipulate all that. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that there's this entire crowd of people who don't actually talk about uh, the Council on Foreign Relations? I, I I can see why they'd be scared. It is. I think it'll be um next year. Uh, it might be a hundred years since the creation okay. of the Council yeah. on Foreign Relations. I think it was 1923. I reckon. Uh, I think 1921 is Chatham House when the British opened up Chatham House, which was like the the, the idea to get the Council of Foreign Relations uh, is like the British version. But but it, this this whole idea of talking about organisations which, which are um. Uh, controlling the world <laughs> causes people to, of course, go, oh, my God, it's a conspiracy theory. We've programmed, been programmed with this, which is uh, an ultimate projection, the idea of conspiracy theory, what you're trying to think about a theory of why someone would conspire to commit a crime. And that's, you know, th that's something that is a basic, like that's a basic 
tenet of trying to understand what someone's doing or what a situation really is and what a situation really means. It's been taken out of our, it's been, we've been forced to stop thinking about these things. And it is that. It's the fear of being called a conspiracy theorist because you say, look at this one entity which has this extreme, grotesque amount of power and history and influence on the entirety of society and has done for a hundred years. And it is the ideology goes for over more than a hundred years because as soon as you get on to real nuts and bolts of it you have to go back to Rhodes Cecil Rhodes you have to go back to like the Rhodesian ideology you have to start talking about how oh well you know the pyramid if you look from above and then you've got the round tables and you've got all of this thing and you're starting to map out to people things that sound like movies sound like fiction and so it's always one step away you're always one step away from sounding like a lunatic if you talk about something like the Council on Foreign Relations it's I've, I've, I've done it on loads of times. I'm in the park. I'm talking away. I'm saying, you know, it's a Rhodesian ideology. You know, it's all around table groups. It's all of this. This is what things like the Royal Society are. They're just little groups of really powerful men who are all having these conversations and they're all gaining at our expense. And before you know it, people are looking, you know, people are saying, God, no, don't be silly. And they're just ridiculing you because you sound like a madman. You know, and that's so I think people try and stay away from that um it's really hard you have to mention it but when you really study these people you can't see anything else but this i i mean it, it one of one of schwab's ment mentors who who would go across to and uh, would be one of the co-keynote speakers of the first world economic forum uh, john kenneth galbraith um he said that the 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 CFR meetings were so banal and inconsequential um, that the only question they raise is whether or not you should live or you should just give up and die. You know, uh, it's like the, even the people who were in the CFR no longer, I don't think, really cared for it knew it why it was there but i don't think it actually does that much apart from let people know who's in people in these bubbles know who's really in charge because the people up at the top of the CFR are the ones really in charge. And I think it's a, a kind of way for them to project that power while being distant from power. And I mean, you can't talk, you, you can't talk about these things with normal people. They're so, they don't have, they don't have the working understanding of the mechanisms of the dynamics of how these organizations work. So you're starting completely from the bottom. Um, the best thing you can do uh, is point out each of the gangsters involved in the gangland crime rather than the entire like mob itself and then the mob will show itself eventually exactly yeah. and yeah. it's so crazy like there's these people are on record saying so many things and like you know they have they have plants or they have members on top level positions at these massive outlets like the washington post and new york times and and, and disney like broadcast companies and everything like that and they, yeah. they've held meetings where they actually openly talk about propagandizing the U.S. citizens, you know, and actually calling for even higher levels of propaganda to help, I, I guess, keep us under control. It's it's absolutely yeah. mind blowing to me that that people are so hard to reach when it comes to telling them about this stuff. It it's not secrets, you know, it's not secretive. I guess it's just it's just way easier to be like, look at Klaus Schwab, he wants us to eat bugs, you know, <laughs> instead of these actual people who've been pulling strings for 
for a century, like you had said. Yeah, they want they, they they I mean they project out the power that we that scares us that we want to see that we that will make us do the thing that we that you know when we see people acting in a certain way we know they're acting but we still go oh look at that person isn't he great at doing this or isn't he great at doing that or isn't he scary or isn't he you know we create these characters themselves they know the characters they're projecting out the the characters that we're staring at of course are not the the the, the people who are really in control they're not the people who are really uh, even it's got to a point now that the whole thing's turning in turned into such a big beast it's not like the cfr is one or two people like like mm. you've got uh, someone called uh daniel korsky who i investigated wrote an investigation about who's um uh, ally of uh nicole Yunkerman. he uh he he's extremely interesting character but he um helped found the european cfr you know and there's loads of other when you talk about trilateral you're also talking about uh, a load there's loads of other sub organizations underneath them and i come across them all the time and they're filled with really rich powerful men who are powerful in a certain way and they're all trying to do the same thing they're all repeating this formula and it's a formula that works really well uh, because it's the formula that's gained complete power and it's working <laughs> yeah yeah completely <laughs> WikiLeaks in 2018, we cite this uh, graphic often. It's uh, they put out a um, like a, a, a massive JPEG that was like five or six megabytes because it lists all the the ties to Council on Foreign Relations uh, to mainstream media outlets and all their members of the Council on Foreign Relations who like sit on the boards of these massive media companies. And so it makes you know that you don't have to trick people right you don't have to because they're controlling all the information that we see and then they're picking the leaders who implement this you know implement their policy and it go it's even it's even goes deeper it goes to the fact that the cover-up crews the cleanup crews everything are all linked to the cfr you follow any line i'm currently following an interesting line and i encourage other people if you're a researcher and you want a really juicy story follow this line follow the pottinger uh, family line follow the pottinger family line and their relation to the epstein case and the prosecution of Jeffrey Epstein on behalf of the victims. You follow that line and you see where that goes because the person heading up that law firm is uh, living with one of the victims at one point and the son is also supposedly living with one of the victims years before and the son becomes like, uh, is a CF heavy CFR member and gets uh, put as deputy national security uh, advisor under Trump and then suddenly the Epstein case happens happens there's a really every trail you go down you end up with a cfr guy sitting at the point where the power is going to come at people where the where it's gonna you know where they're gonna try and do something um so so every single case is interesting that's that's exactly i mean spot on exactly what gavin nasciamento said and in his interview with us which is funny because you both come to this the same conclusion here but you did mention something a while back in the conversation, you had said that the World Economic Forum it, it intentionally, in, in so many words, you said they're intentionally inflammatory. A lot of times the, the information is so vague and ambiguous that it can be interpreted differently by different people. So, I mean, you called it 
you know, maybe a capitalist organization, whereas people on the right are constantly calling it communist or socialist, you know? So I think, you know, I've also heard technocrat and, and fascist as well. So I think in that sense, they're really succeeding in kind of blurring the lines there and muddying the waters to put out propaganda that's effective for almost everybody, you know, depending yeah, yeah. on your, your type Be of Be all things ideology. to all men. All things to all men, and yes. they do it really well. And um, but that now, I, I one of one of the uh, ideas I have about where this is all going is that the World Economic Forum is reaching the peak of its um, potential power. You can't you can't push it any further. It's not like we're going to allow them global governance. I I, I think there's always a um, fuse lit on the World Economic Forum being that, that Klaus Schwab is a lifetime leader of the organization and eventually the organization will be possibly dissipate into parts or be taken over by something else and become something completely different than what um, it was claimed to be originally. But they, they're all, they, they really know how to light a fire under people's bonnets on all sides whether right. you're a capitalist, whether you're a communist. And now, if you go back, I did, um, uh, um, I'm did. i starting up a new series called Newshound, and it's looking at old articles that no one else has looked at. And I found one of the first articles where Klaus Schwab is mentioned in uh, American or British newspapers. And it's about uh, computer threat to privacy, it's called, um, in the British newspaper. And it looks at this organization called the International, I think it's called the International Business Management Institute, who are sponsoring the first ever Davos, um, the first ever of World Economic Forum event. Um, and four months before, it's um, this article um, where it's going to be, uh, where it says it's sponsoring the first ever Davos in 19, uh, 1971. Uh, a few months before this article, um, the, the, this same uh, institute is running a course where they're bringing over um, uh, communists from Soviet Russia to teach them capitalist methods of industry and teach them capitalism. And there's this whole article about communists being taught capitalism and they're coming across to schools and learning all of this. And this really was happening at a base level. These organizations were infiltrating the ideology on all parts. And the people who were setting up the World Economic Forum originally uh, four months before, three months before, uh, were, were running something which at the peak of the Cold War you wouldn't even believe was actually happening in 1970. And they've got communists being brought across to the West to, being taught, to be taught capitalism. You get a feeling that the communists knew that they were going downhill and had accepted defeat very early. Um, or there was a bit of this all over the place. They were doing it. That everybody was trying to infiltrate everybody. And it got so messy and so big and so grand. Nobody knew who was infiltrating who anymore and it kind of become a party where it's like okay let's just all learn from each other because we've all we all like a little bit of communism here and there we don't like that bit of communism we all like this we've learned so much from each other we're basically akin and I think that that was a that that was something that happened at some point. There was a, a lot. I think that I think it's called the Dartmouth Lectures, which John Kenneth Galbraith and uh, David Rockefeller took part in. Um, were were also like a, a little bit of that. The talking with communists and learning where they're going right and we're going wrong, and that's really what the World Economic Forum was built on. The the global world order is going to be cut and paste to the best bits of everything. That means the best bits of capitalism, the best bits of fascism, and the best bits of communism. And there you've got the World Economic Forum. Yeah, 
that that's exactly what it feels like actually when I see some of their propaganda and literature floating around the internet. So let's jump back to, to Klaus Schwab though, because he is kind of the main villain behind all this. And um, well, supposedly anyway, right. That's, that's the perception they want us <laughs> to have. But I, I, uh, I know you had mentioned he, and this is pretty well known. His father was uh, a Nazi, but I also heard on the Bob Murphy podcast that you, you did with Bob Murphy that uh, he, Klaus Schwab is actually connected to the royal family as well. Is is there truth to that? And if so, can you maybe explain a little bit? Um, d- no, no. I don't think I said he was a member of the royal family, but maybe no, I said it. Bob did. Bob did. Oh right. Oh no, no, no. Well, no. I, I... just like I know people had been talking about Klaus Schwab going back, but like I didn't really start paying attention until I realized he was connected with the royal family. Cause I just thought he was like an academic and all. Yeah. There's all kinds of academics with crazy ideas. And it was only within the last, I don't know, 18 months that I personally realized, Whoa, this guy's really plugged in. I got to pay attention to him. I, I, I can't, cause what all I found about Klaus Schwab is where the evidence is. And the evidence only goes back to a man called Jakob Wilhelm Gottfried Schwab. Um, and he's 18, born 1870 and is finding records of who his ancestors were really hard, partially probably because he was uh, Jewish and he was going to an area called Baden Baden, just north of uh, Schwabia where Schwab's come from. Uh, lots of people changed their last names to Schwab on purpose, so people thought they were from the region, because for the 300 years before, something like that, they were having uh, Jewish blood libels, where they were basically persecuting Jews randomly and taking them out. And f- for about 100 years, uh, Jews were banned from entering into the area at all. Um, so I think is. uh uh, grandfather Klaus Schwab's grandfather was Jewish and was uh, changed his name to Schwab. It's really hard to find who his ancestors were. Um, his his son is Eugen Schwab, um, and then it comes Klaus Schwab. So there's no royals. I couldn't find any royals. Um, lots of people like to claim that he's somehow connected to um, uh, a guy, I think his name's Stephen Schwab, who was married to a Rothschild. Um, but there's a complete... Schwabia is a massive region with a load of people, and loads of people had the name Schwab. Um, and this is a completely different family from a completely different area of Germany who are, I, I have no way of finding them connected, but I still, still, still see people on, um, things like TikTok saying stuff like, and look, this guy Schwab related to Klaus Schwab. And it's like some guy from 500 years ago. And it's just cause his name's Schwab and they just don't understand the process of how names are and who people are and who the actual family lines were. So I found no evidence of that. Or even that image that was popular or popularized recently on Twitter and Facebook and other social media outlets where it's, it purports to show uh, Klaus Schwab's father in a Nazi uniform. That's, that's actually a different person. That's not even. Um, you, yeah. You it's not the right Schwab. Nazi. It's not the right Nazi. The thing is, is that's right. what they do. They say, look, Klaus Schwab's father wasn't this Nazi. And he was <laughs> like, Oh, right. he was that Nazi. <laughs> um, it, it's really, it's, uh, and the thing is, is that you probably would find a picture of Eugene Schwab in his Nazi attire out there somewhere, because the people of Ravensburg, where the factory was based, where Eugene Schwab, 
glass factory were based, his model Nazi company, were crazy, crazy for the Nazis. There were swastikas on every corner and every building. They were really, really some of the most fundamental. And it was, um, interestingly, it was protected throughout the war from bombing uh, by uh, the Swiss Red Cross who come along. Um, the other part of the Escher Weiss uh, company, the factory, was in Switzerland. And it was originally a Swiss company. Um, and it had special dispensation during the war not to be attacked by the British because it would be a humanitarian centre. Instead, it was a centre where slave labour worked uh, to help for the Nazi atomic bomb project. Uh, at the head was Klaus Schwab's father. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like they were actually very nice. And it's very interesting that it's a Swiss Red Cross again who pops up doing something like this. They pop up in nearly like every sort of historic article I look through when you get into the 1900s, the Red Cross pops up doing naughty things all over the place. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a total, uh, you know, straw man too. They claim like, oh, see the, all the fact checks. They say, oh, Lee, Eugene Schwab, see, he wasn't uh, Hitler's right-hand man like the conspiracy theorists are saying. Though he was a member of, you know, multiple national socialist organizations, he wasn't Hitler's right-hand man. And no one said that he was Hitler's right-hand man, right? They they debunked that claim that no one made instead and admitted that he was, you know, that he was in these national socialist organizations, Nazi organizations, but they claim that they have to do twists, man. They have to, they have to go in circles. I mean, they really have to turn in circles to make up this stuff. And it's, it's really interesting. What's what I find really interesting is that they can't, they can't aim at me uh, or Whitney or a lot of other people we write with because we're so source. We've got sources all over our work. We, you can actually go and see the documents um, that, that show the information that we're describing, which is something that isn't, isn't what is practiced in the mainstream. So I had um, an uh, article written by the BBC, which was saying about oh, World Economic Forum conspiracy theories are all over the internet. And they used the image we had made. We had a guy called... Um, uh, Hal Hefner uh, designed the Schwab family values. Uh, the, they live Schwab um, for for the front cover with the Obey Consume Reset logo, and, uh, and and they used that in the article. But they didn't mention the article. They didn't mention me. They didn't mention where the article was published. They didn't mention any of it. They were just showing the picture and saying conspiracy theories. Let, let people just see it and uh, it's working on that base level they're too scared to say our names because if they say our names people go and do a little bit of research so they have to stay away from saying the names of people who are telling uh the truth with facts attached um and and it took six people to write that bbc article well <laughs> You're obviously just a extremist and a terrorist, Johnny, for even... Uh, I feel it. Yeah, That's what being a Welshman is. That's what being a Welshman has always been. <laughs> well, um, seeing I uh, swung and missed on that last question, I'll, I'll certainly have to follow up with Bob about that because uh, I, I actually had to rewind it. When I heard him say that. I had to rewind it 15 seconds. I was like, wait, did he really say that? He did say that. And uh, I don't think you actually got into it, but I'll definitely follow up with him about that. But Seeing we've also mentioned Henry Kissinger a few times, and he's kind of the, the Harvard brainchild behind a lot of these, uh, you know, evil ruling class overlords. 
do you have any history or, or knowledge about who brought up Henry Kissinger and who implanted these globalist policies and I don't know, elitist fantasies into his head? Yeah, very much is um, there's a fair few people who really have like massive effect on Henry Kissinger. Uh, one of them is Fritz Kramer, who he serves with in the trenches during the war. Um, uh, Kissinger's really young when he goes into the war and he really impresses. By the end of the war, he's searching house for house, um, house by house for uh, Nazis, you know, after the war. Uh, but beforehand, he's with Fritz Kramer. And Fritz Kramer is described as like a monocle wearing caricature. Uh, um, of uh, of a Nazi, you know, ah, he's kind of like I think um, uh, Doctor, uh, I, I think Doctor Strangelove wasn't just um, uh, uh, based on Herman Kahn, uh, Doctor Kahn. He was also based upon Fritz Kramer a little bit and Henry Kissinger a little bit. I think there was a little bit of that because Fritz Kramer really is the crazy, like flying into a fit and hysterics. He was a, a crazy guy. Really led Kissinger. Kissinger was really influenced by him. Um, and uh, George Bundy obviously had some form of effect, but I think it was William Yandel Elliott, who was the advisor to Six President, who had such a, a, an enormous uh, effect on Kissinger. There's someone else I'm failing to remember who who, who had uh, effect on him too that I know about. Um, but, but I mean, Kissinger was just like, uh, and, and the love child of all of these people who had bring, been bringing these theories together and suddenly there was this guy who could vocalize them and write them down into massive uh, dissertations and made them all so they, they were, it was like it, for them it was like I suppose the Beatles coming out for these people who worked in the CFR and stuff Kissinger was like Len, uh, Lennon or McCartney I, was gonna, I also almost said Lennon <laughs> no <laughs> but he was he was like Lennon or McCartney. He was more like Lennon though. Um but but he was he was this real special person and everybody who came across Kissinger was like, Oh, he's gonna be great and made him great. Um there's also a lot of people Kissinger knew he had people around him, like lieutenants. There's some really interesting characters that I'm not gonna say the name of out loud because they're gonna come up in very future articles um and and they are very special people who kissinger were, were was very tight with but kissinger knew how to network him and his uh wife did a lot of that um they they threw parties uh all through the summer at harvard where all of the intellectuals would go and he knew as well, partially through the help of people like Herman Kahn, who was um, working for a State Department between 1966 and 1968, writing up what basically would be a document that would show the future. It was uh, the year 2000, uh, which would basically showed all the technologies that were expected to be made um, in, for, for the foreseeable future. Still, we haven't achieved most of the technologies, and it's been almost perfect and accurate in um, the technologies it did foresee. Um, and people who were were around Kissinger, had access to such information very, very early on. So Kissinger was a really important person to be close to if you were rich and powerful. He became this weird, I, I can't even, I, I think he's like, he, 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 people would say he's a kingmaker, but I think he was like a king for himself for a, a certain amount of time. Oh, he certainly was. I remember when he met with Trump in 2016 
and uh you know and basically granted him a pass to 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 be the president actually you know he yeah. even he, yeah. he even said he even advised the world to uh for the to for them to obey Trump's vision of international order and it was it was crazy at the time that's why we knew we knew at the time that Trump was going to be elected because Henry Kissinger had met with him so he had to get go from the uh from the establishment he um he fixed uh, he fixed a football world cup as well I know that sounds bizarre, but type in Kissinger Football World Cup and it's a well-documented event where he goes into the dressing room uh, on the final and everybody throws the match. It's amazing. (laughs) Kissinger has got his fingers in so many pies and everybody knows who's the boss. Everybody knows early on, even like, you know, uh, when when Kissinger's international seminar, which was, you know, to describe it, it was the young global leaders. It's a template for the young global leaders. It was about inviting uh, potential global leaders to this um, course that would uh, give them American back and American mentors and send them off back to their own countries to be installed into power. I mean, that's a really interesting, uh, uh, like, process to go through, and it would eventually turn into what is the young global leaders today. It's like exactly the same program uh you go there you learn uh you get stalled back into your uh, country uh of origin uh into a good position and all these people support you well you know it, this was like a king making machine that kissinger was running so kissinger wasn't just like powerful in a way that was um uh like ethereal he was actually powerful he could install leaders around and then all of those leaders were his friends everybody in power would be like oh have you not met kissinger he's my friend and you know and and then they would network around everybody loved kissinger uh, but that's because he put all of the people he went to the parties with afterwards and went to his parties he in a sense kind of granted access to power granted that thing it's amazing yeah and it's it's pretty incredible how vast that net is spread and and how vast and wide that net is spread for leaders who have uh, been associated with the the World Economic Forum. Uh, even the new UK Prime Minister who just got sworn in today, Liz Truss, is associated with the WEF as well. But um, hey, Johnny, we're actually getting close to the the end here, so we're going to have to wrap it up. But I was curious if there was like one thing that you really don't get to talk about or you've never mentioned an interview or something you just think our audience should be aware of or kind of on their radar regarding the WEF. And maybe we could just wrap with that. Wow. That's a, that's a cheeky little question that I'm not <laughs> sure if I have an answer to. Um, I, I, but I know I, 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 I would say, uh, this is now here you go. Pomposity galore. Get ready. Um, right. Okay. I know I've already exclaimed that she's my partner and stuff, but, uh, Whitney Webb's got a new book coming out and I swear to God, if you read some of that, you, <laughs> some of, some of your, 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 your arms will drop off. It's, it, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. I'm not saying like I'm not, I'm not claiming that she's the most incredible writer in the world. That's up to you, the audience to decide. But what really goes on behind closed doors and how all these people link in and attach is extraordinary. And there is um, links directly from all of this uh, tomfoolery of the creation of the World Economic Forum. This story goes on. It doesn't end with the creation of the World Economic Forum. 
it doesn't end with Klaus Schwab being installed um, kind of, just after being in a CIA program, after going to work for his father's model Nazi company at one point to do a merger uh, and stuff. You know, th th it goes on. There's so much more attached to it. And there's so much more to come. And it goes all the way to the criminals that we know and uh, hate so much that have filled our TV screens for the past 20 years. This is all a story that runs from the start of this creation of these ideas in the 50s all the way up through and all of the future you'll see uh, how all of these people are linked up and you'll be in wonder the World Economic Forum isn't what you think it is it's a, a, a multitude of things it's a something to everybody and it's all things to all men it's been made that way um, so it's our maybe our enemy but it's a route into some and amazing stories um, and some amazing articles that show the links and conspiring criminal enterprises of some of the most rich famous um and intriguing people in our history so this place is like i'd say it's like um a mobster's paradise if you're a corporate mobster you know and <laughs> and some of the stories and articles that will come from it some of the things you'll learn will 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 just blow your mind and stuff is coming i promise you are the perfect duo. <laughs> Your wealth of knowledge. I mean, Whitney blew our minds for for an hour, just like just like you did for the last hour, man. It's as uh, I, I really look forward to to more your work and her book that's coming out. You know, I didn't want to like th that book to steal your thunder, but that just shows how too how well you two compliment each other hey she's the queen she's the queen she's she's <laughs> uh, i honestly i i don't get a word in edgeway she when she tell tells me stuff i'm just listening because she's fantastic she's got <laughs> such a i i'm i'm a faker in comparison so remember that so uh her, just so our audience knows her books are called one nation under blackmail there's two different uh versions right there's um the first one and there's the second one i guess there's just so much that she actually had to put it into yes yeah it's for first volume second volume and it is uh, i i've you you know you hear all just about the sex blackmail stuff that's been fed to you on purpose the whole i mean like i say earlier cfr men were all over the case they were right down to the creation of that case against epstein it was all carefully managed it was managed from inside the white house uh, and it led to where it is and that's not like even a tiny bit of the story the real stories are mind-blowing you would not believe what they were up to but it was more than blackmailing oh <laughs> and um yeah it's it's fantastic i'm so happy for her because uh, i mean it's sourced up the wazoo so it's like you know 250 sources per chapter or something uh oh. it's crazy what she's done and um i'm really proud of her and it's gonna be amazing yeah you wait for that yeah, you should be proud of her, man. She is amazing and uh, just such a hard worker, too. I, I can only imagine how having an infant while trying to write that must have been so challenging, you know. But yeah, definitely uh, to anybody listening, check out our podcast with Whitney. It's a great compliment to this one. Your head will be spinning by the end of it, guaranteed. Why don't you tell our listeners uh, how they could uh, find you and follow your work online? 
before we get out? Yeah, a, a, a lot of my stuff's on Unlimited Hangout. Of course, if you go to johnnyvedmore.com, and uh, my, uh, you'll find a lot of my links around there. Um, but the, my uh, media stuff is also on Fungi Monkey, as in uh, fungi, as in mushrooms. Fungimonkey.com, where you'll find a lot of my stuff, including police auditing, uh, which I do as kind of a like little pastime uh, to hold those in authority to real account one on one in person, and a load of other things that I do. So please, you know, uh, support independent media. Fist up in the air. Man, that's awesome. I had no idea that you were that you did police uh, police auditing. That's a <laughs> that's yeah, a whole yeah, other love it. action of the Free Thought Project. You know, we do this this type of stuff and then we also do police accountability. That's that's amazing, man. You you didn't cease to amaze me during this podcast from your origin story waking up because of the music industry instead of just, you know, reading a book or finding someone online that told you something, but it's uh it's it's been a pretty amazing podcast, man. Thank you very much for coming on here, Johnny. Thanks, man. Thanks. Johnny, thanks so much for joining us today. And even though we had the technical difficulties multiple times, uh, we persevered. This was definitely educational, eye-opening, and wonderful conversation. So thanks for investing all the time and energy into this topic, uh, especially now when so many people are really just trying to figure out what's going on. I, I think this is yeah, going to be a great resource. So thank you, brother. Thanks, thanks for having me on, and th thanks for everybody who's reading it and spreading it around. You know, uh, I, I, a lot of us are doing this. Just we've got nothing but want to tell the story. Uh, thanks for getting the story out there.